0: This morning, let's turn to uh, Matthew chapter 12, and if you would stand with me, I'd like to read to you verses 22 through 30. Matthew writes, Then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind and mute, and he healed him, so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, Could this be the Son of David? Now when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. But Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods, unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house? He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. And Father, we we pray, Lord, that you would graciously work in our hearts and our minds and work upon our will. Lord, that we would be with you and never found standing against you. Father, we pray that we would be a people cleansed in the blood of of your son Jesus and sealed and filled, instructed, led and empowered by your Holy Spirit. Father, give us ears to hear this morning, Lord, what you need to say to the church in these days for your glory, for your honor. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. Amen. Let's be seated. well if you keep track of these things and it it is good for us to do that to apply the scripture rightly we're in the second to last year really of Jesus' life he only has one more year to live here upon the earth before he's accused and taken to the cross and there rejected by man beaten by man abused by man He will surrender his life to the will of his Father, which was to become your sin and my sin. And let God the Father judge it there in him on the cross once and for all. And so thankful for Jesus crying from the cross, it is finished, the price has been paid in full. And then commending his spirit into the hands of the Father, knowing that his work was faithfully obediently completely done and the evidence that God the Father accepts the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf was the resurrection of Jesus and then finally making it personal and something that we can take possession of the day of Pentecost came when the spirit was fully poured out And we're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise now until the day of redemption, until Christ returns for his bride, the church, and takes us home to be with him. And then we will see him as he is, because, John wrote, we will be like him. Imagine that. We will be like the Son of God, our Savior, Jesus This is also an event that took place while Jesus was still in the northern area up around Capernaum remembering that although his home had initially been in Nazareth when he preached there in the synagogue one Sunday and identified himself as fulfilling the prophecies concerning the Messiah—they became so enraged with them that they dragged him out of the tab, or out of the uh, synagogue, and they took him out to the crest of the hill. Uh, Nazareth was built right into the side of a mountain. Even modern-day Nazareth is still built into the side of this mountain. And they took him out there, and uh, they were going to throw him off the cliff and be done with him once and for all. But Jesus was able graciously to slip through them and and avoid their intentions to destroy him and continue his work. But from Nazareth, then he changed home base and he came to Capernaum. Capernaum still on the western shore of the Galilee, but up on the northwestern shore of the Galilee. And he moved in with one of his disciples and his wife and Uh, mother-in-law and that would be peter and lived in peter's home and there's physical tangible evidence of this existent today uh, through the way they marked homes in those days for taxing purposes and they have found a slate upon which was written the home of simon peter and jesus of nazareth And so uh, there is, again, just evidence of of the accuracy of the New Testament account. And so while Jesus is there in Capernaum, there was one that was brought to him who was demon-possessed. And so obviously someone who is not born again is not indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. The Bible tells us that light and darkness cannot dwell together. And so someone who is truly born again of the Spirit cannot be demon possessed. The Holy Spirit does not share his temple, his dwelling place, with Satan or any demonic being. Now that's not to say that a believer cannot, through his own rebellion, through his own compromise, expose himself to the influence of demonic entities and even surrender at times his will his choice his determination to walk with the Lord but if you're born again today the Bible tells us through the Apostle Paul that you are sealed to the day of redemption and it's a seal that was put on an item marked with wax and the wax being unbroken, the seal being unbroken, the person sending it would know that the one receiving it would receive it intact, and the one who received it would know that what they were receiving was exactly what the person sending it intended. And Paul the Apostle uses that illustration to describe a believer, someone who is trusted in the blood of Jesus, Someone who has then been sealed with the Holy Spirit. It's as if the Holy Spirit of God is saying, I seal you and one day will deliver you to your owner. And that would be your creator. And I will do it all based upon the assurances of your Savior, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. But this person evidently was not someone who was a believer, but he was someone demon-possessed. And the consequence of that demon possession was blindness and the inability to talk. He could hear, but he could not see, and he could not talk. Hmm. And Jesus came to him, and it simply states, he healed him. It doesn't tell us how, it doesn't tell us what he did in this account, because Matthew's account is of Jesus, the son of David, the rightful heir to the throne, a king. And so here the idea is the authority of the Word of God. When Jesus spoke, the demon left. The authority of Jesus greater than all the power of Satan, all the power of all of the demons collectively, greater than the very power of hell. That's why Jesus said, listen, upon this rock, the rock meaning himself, Jesus, the rock of our salvation. Upon this rock I will build my church. And what? The gates of hell, the authority of hell, all of the legions of hell organized under the headship of Satan. They will not prevail. It is an absolute promise without any condition whatsoever. And the value of it, the benefit of it, becomes ours through repentance of sin and self-will and acceptance of Christ, not only as Savior, but as Lord and Master. And so Jesus here, in all of his sovereign power and his perfect love, looking upon this one who is demon-possessed, unable to see, unable to speak, Jesus approached him and healed him, so that the blind and the mute man both spoke and saw. And all the multitudes that were there, they were amazed. And and as we read this, understand this would allow us to know that this was something very unusual. There was a great deal of demonic activity when Jesus came the first time, just as we understand from the prophecies that there will be an increase in demonic activity as we approach the second coming of Jesus, and that demonic activity will come to its apex when the man of sin, the very Antichrist, will reveal himself and draw men to himself and demand authority over them. In other words folks while we are sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise today and while we have that wonderful promise that nothing created can pluck you and I as believers out of our Savior's hand we need to be wise and understand that demonic activity is not decreasing because of education because of culture or because of religion that has nothing to do with it. Satanic demonic activity is increasing And the evidence of it is the hardness of the heart of man. The idea that man can live apart from God. Or that man can live without knowing the heart and the mind of God. It goes all the way back to the garden when Satan Satan approaching Eve said, Yea, has God said, are you sure that God has spoken? That God is concerned enough, loving enough to reveal himself and to speak to his creation? And then he caused them to doubt that God demands righteousness. He said, you will not die. You know if you sin against God if you rebel against the will of God there's no consequence there's no punishment for that. That was the second lie, and we're seeing that throughout the cultures of the world today. Many roads to God many ways to God. It doesn't matter whether you believe in Jesus whether you believe in Muhammad whether you believe in, in any deity whatsoever. As long as you believe in something, you are good. That is the lie that is being spread in our culture through the education system, the political system, and even the church today. And not just the Catholic church, but also the Protestant church that is preaching messages, the evangelical church. The so-called Pentecostal church, not all of them of course, but many of them today are preaching a gospel that has nothing to do with the cross of Christ, the blood of Jesus Christ. It never seeks to deal with the fall of man, the sin of man, and the need of man to be restored in right relationship with God. The Bible tells us that these are doctrines of demons. And we need to be wise enough to understand it's nothing less than that. It's not just a misunderstanding. It's not just poor uh, exposition of the scripture. It's demonic doctrine that that tries to convince people they can have a relationship with God and expect an eternity of blessing with God apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's demonic. And it's interesting to me that this man, while he was under the influence of the demon, he was blind. You know, and people today, they're blind to the things of God. They're blind to an understanding of their own heart, their own nature, their own failure. They try to explain it away and write it off as just cultural or, or just you know a, a poor set of genes that they inherited from their parents or whatever the case may be, but they're blind to the truth. There's only one standard of righteousness that is acceptable before God, and that is the righteousness that was revealed through His Son, Jesus Christ. That is the only standard of righteousness. And the Bible says that we have all sinned. We have all come short of that standard. That there is none good, no, not one. And so each of us must allow the Spirit of God to to reveal to us our own heart. We must come into agreement with what God says, not what we want, not what the world tells us is true. Not even what the church tells us is a right expectation. We must bring our life into a line with what God has said. And where we are wrong, admit it. Confess it as sin and seek his forgiveness. And if we find anywhere where we are right and we are in agreement with God, then give him thanks. Because my Bible tells me apart from him, I can't do anything. So if I get it right, it's a miracle. It's a miracle. Before the Lord touches us, we're all blind to who God is and who we really are, and then mute also, unable to speak right. The Bible tells us, in fact we'll look at it a little further in, that from the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. And when a human being, it doesn't matter how old they are, doesn't matter how inexperienced they are. It doesn't matter how uneducated they are. What comes out of a person's mouth is simply the proof of what already exists in their heart. It's not a slip of the tongue. It's a revelation of a nature that's always been there. And this poor man, you know, you think of it, uh, the blindness, uh, unable to see himself for who he really is and the world in which he lives, that, that is a difficulty that we might have compassion about. But unable to speak, uh, that might have been a grace of God. You know, uh, and, you know it's, it's open, your fo- open your mouth and put your foot in, right, is, is the old adage. And this guy could never do that. Could never do that. But Jesus came and healed him. So that the blind and the mute man both spoke and saw. And the multitudes there, they were amazed and said, Could this be the Son of David? An important title, the Son of David. They didn't ask, is this a prophet? They didn't ask, is this a teacher? They didn't ask, is this a rabbi? They didn't ask, which party is this man a part of? Is he a Sadducee or is he a Pharisee? They didn't ask that. They asked the question, is it possible that this is the son of David? And we need to remember again that when Matthew wrote his gospel account, his main thrust was to reveal to us that Jesus is God's promised king. He is the one whom we can entrust to have complete and total authority over our past, our present, and our future. And so, when they asked the question, "Could this be the son of David?" they are referencing a promise that had been made to David, that upon his throne he would never be without a man to reign. And obviously, the natural uh, successors to David—they all failed. But the one who came, who is the son of David, and also the son of Abraham, though he was tempted in every way as we are, he never failed, he never sinned, and his name is Jesus. Remember how this gospel began? Look with me back at chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. He's the son of David the heir to his throne, the heir to all the promises made by God to David for the nation of Israel. He is the son of David, and also he is the son of Abraham. Look over at verse 20 in chapter 1. When Christ has been born of of Mary, It tells us that while he, Joseph, thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. So not only was Joseph a son of David, we also understand that Mary came from that same lineage. She descended from David. If you look at chapter 8 in Matthew's Gospel. Look with me at verse 29. There were two demon-possessed men. And they cried out in verse 29 saying, What have we to do with you, Jesus, you son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? The demons possessing these two men recognized Jesus as the son of God. Matthew refers to him as the son of David. If you look at verse 27 in chapter 9. Again two blind men when Jesus departed from there two blind men followed him crying out and saying son of David have mercy on us and I I think it's wonderful that they're blind men that are crying out to Jesus there was nothing visible about him practically you know physically about him that would have caused them to believe that this one is the rightful heir to the throne of David this one is the one whom God has promised to be our Messiah all they had to go by was what they had heard him say the power of the word of God and we know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God they all began to ask, could it be, could this one be the son of David, because of his power and his authority over the kingdom of Satan? Now, when the Pharisees, verse 24, heard heard it, they said, this fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub. And Beelzebub was uh, a deity of the Philistines. He was a... Uh, Uh, a a demonically inspired deity that the philistines worshiped and so rather than recognize that they were unable to do anything about this demonic uh, being that was oppressing and silencing and blinding this man uh, they heard it they they couldn't accept that jesus was able to do it, and so this fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. So if you can't stand up against your opponent, you undermine your opponent, and that's exactly what these religious leaders were doing. You can't trust Jesus. It doesn't matter whether he can heal. It doesn't matter whether he can give sight. It doesn't matter whether he can loose a tongue. It doesn't matter whether he can raise the dead. He is demonically inspired, so you can't trust him. And the idea is you can trust us. We have the truth. And religion will always do that. And it's something to be very, very careful of in these last days. And, and can I say it? Especially, I think, in, in the midst of Calvary chapels. We, we have become known as people who are sort of the guardians, if you will, of, of the Scripture, the Word of God. Even Billy Graham, years ago, attested to the idea that God raised up... Calvary chapels to give the word of God back to the people of God. That was what he saw as the calling of Calvary chapels, the reason for their existence. But what we need to be careful of is we don't come to the place where we have a knowledge of the scripture without an experience of the power of God. There needs to be a balance between the knowledge of the scripture and the power of the resurrected Christ dwelling in us. We we need to be careful that our understanding of the Scripture isn't limited to our own intellect, and that it is never limited by our own spiritual or religious community. We can't allow that to be the case. The body of Christ is much, much bigger than Calvary Chapel. It's much, much bigger than just Protestant it's much much bigger than than just any one expression of the body of christ and we need to be careful that as we seek to understand the Scripture and apply the Scripture, that it is not dictated by the culture that we enjoy here. I love the culture here. I love the freedom we have. I I love the the joy that we have together. I, I, I love the fellowship that we can develop with one another, but we can never think for a moment that this is the total expression of the kingdom of God or that we have a complete and total handle on all of the truth of God. We do not. But we should be growing in our knowledge, right, of His love and grace. And we should always allow His love and grace, by the work of His Holy Spirit, to open the Scripture so that we know the intention of His heart. Knowledge, the Apostle Paul would say, It causes us to become arrogant. It puffs us up in pride. But love, the very nature of God expressed by Jesus in his life and death, and now given to us through the presence of the Holy Spirit, that love, that's what builds up the body of Christ and what encourages people around us to come to Christ. Now Jesus, in verse 25, it says, he knew their thoughts. Again, another evidence of the deity of Christ. His power over demons speaks to us about the fact that he's omnipotent. One of the qualities of God. But here also, knowing things without being told those things. Having a knowledge that supersedes human knowledge. Tells us that he is also omniscient. He knows all things. And again, those are two qualities that are reserved for God and God alone. Only God is all-powerful. And only God is all-knowing. And Jesus here shows us He is all-powerful and He is all-knowing. Jesus knew their thoughts. That might be kind of frightening to some of us here today. Take heed to your heart, your mind, your thoughts. For from it comes forth the issues of life. And while we can hide things from one another by simply not speaking, we need to remember we can hide nothing from God. Every thought, expressed or unexpressed, is known by Him. And every thought is an expression of what's true about our nature. What comes out of our mouth is often guarded and is not always a true indicator of what's going on in our hearts and our minds. That's why it's so important to have your mind renewed daily. Through the washing of the Word, by taking in the Scripture, meditating on the Scripture, memorizing huge chunks of scripture if you're able small if that's all you can do but get the word of God tucked away in your heart and in your mind you know pastor Rob gave me a ride home last night from from rehearsal here so uh, I got to sit in the back seat with Ariana and you know what what do you talk to a 10 year old about whatever a 10-year-old wants to talk about. That's, that's what you talk about. And you know, it was, what was so wonderful was she said, she said, Pastor Jeff, you want to hear me recite some scripture? <laughs> sure. And she did. She didn't have her Bible with her, nothing open. She said, well, this is from Philippians. Boom. She just knocked it off like there was nothing to it. I was thinking to myself, oh, Lord, if, if only when I was her age I had begun to tuck the Word of God away in my heart. I wonder how much of the evil and wickedness in my life I might have avoided. And I was really impressed with that first thing out of the, out of the box, you know, and that was from Philippians 2, and then she gets all done with that, and she says, want to hear another? <laughs> well, what do you say? Sure. So she goes to Philippians 4 and she just starts boom. She tells me what verses they are and it wasn't just one or two. It was like five, six, seven verses. Bam. Nailed it. Show off. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. Oh, So important to be sure that that your heart, you're giving your heart, your mind, your innermost thoughts, the things that you would never say, that you hope that no one else ever finds out about. The only way for you and I to get victory over those things, because one day we're going to stand before the one who knows our thoughts perfectly and is going to hold us to account for every thought, every word, every motivation. The only way to help ourselves get cleansed and freed from that is to renew ourselves in the spirit of our mind through the washing of the water of the word. We've got to take in the word of God. Memorize it. Read it. Think about it. Meditate on it. Chew on it. Jesus knew their every thought. And he said to them, and it's, it's pretty simple logically here, he says, you know, Every kingdom that divides against itself is brought to desolation. Every city or even a household divided against itself will not stand if, if there's a kingdom and a civil war breaks out it's not going to stand if there if there is a city and, and some sort of division comes where the citizens of that city turn on one another the city is going to destroy itself a home and we've seen that way too often where where a home and the people in the home turn against one another you know and they they destroy the family unit Jesus is simply using as an illustration things that everyone would understand and then he draws from it this principle he says verse 26 if satan was casting out satan and that's what they were saying listen this man was demon possessed i come and i cast the demon out you're telling me that i'm a servant of satan if if i'm a servant of satan and i drive out another servant of satan Where's the sense in that? That kingdom is not going to stand. He is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? But verse 27 he says, And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, if I'm guilty of doing that, if that is possible, if Satan would work that way, then he says, By whom do your sons cast them out? because your sons are going around and, and praying over people and claiming to have authority and power over demonic beings that are just destroying people's lives. Therefore they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Yeah. And it's true. Listen, anyone that's here this morning who is truly born again of the Spirit of God, God by some means has freed you from the dominion and the hold that Satan had over your life, whether at the time you were aware of it or willing and able to claim that to be true. There's not a one of us here, no matter how long we've walked with the Lord, There's not a one of us here that weren't at one time, by our own choice, willing to surrender to the deception and the destructive doctrines of Satan. Every single one of us. It is by grace that we are saved, not of works, lest any man should boast. And if you're a child of God, then you are His workmanship, created for good works, which God hath before ordained for you to walk in. God has a a wonderful life, and planned for that life, for you and for me, for all of us. And it is Jesus, the Word become flesh, who casts the demons out and sets us free. I didn't know it at the time, but I was surrendering my life, the will of my life, to alcohol, to drugs, to relationships I shouldn't have been in, dishonesty, pride, deception. You know, if you have one sin (laughs) that you can identify, trust me, there's five or six others shadowing, and covering that one they never travel alone and i'm so thankful that god brought me to a place where i began to hate the sin and began to have a hope that maybe god could forgive and now some what 30 7 years later here we are. So thankful. So thankful. It is Jesus, the Word of God, who sets us free, who heals us, who has authority and power over every demonic being. No matter how dark your situation, no matter how deep and long-standing the circumstance, the hold that Satan has had upon your life, he is absolutely no match For Jesus Christ, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham, the Son of God. He's no match. You can trust him today with whatever it is that you need. If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his house. And here Jesus again is just using a very practical illustration. And he's saying, you know, this, this poor man that was mute and blind, he, he, he was a house that a strong man was holding onto a demon, Satan through a demon, but a stronger than Satan has come and plundered that house, has plundered the treasure of that house, and the treasure of that house was the soul of that man. Jesus is the stronger man. Satan is a strong man, but Jesus is the stronger man. And Satan, when he takes control of a person's life, he takes possession of the treasure that that man's life represents. That treasure may be in the form of the ability, the capability of one day becoming a great author, a great educator, a great composer, a great artist, a great dad, a great mom a great employee, a great doctor, someone useful. There's a treasure that God has placed in every human being he creates. But until that human being is born again, he is born with a nature that makes him susceptible to being deceived and abused by the ruler of this world. And he is strong, he is powerful, he is convincing But the stronger than him is Jesus Christ, who comes and sees the value of that human life. And he sets that life free, and he releases that treasure, the purpose of God for that man's life, the giftings of God in that person's life. And he releases that person to serve the Lord and fulfill his God-given purpose, in the home, in the church, at work, at school, wherever God has him. Jesus is the greater who comes and plunders his goods. And Jesus then makes it very clear. He draws the line in the sand. Verse 30, He who is not with me is against me. He wasn't looking for the approval of the Pharisees. He wasn't looking for the approval of the religious leaders. He simply stated the fact. You're either with me, or you're against me. There's nobody that is neutral. There, There is no way that somebody can say, yes, I believe in Jesus, and then go off and live life by their own decisions, their own powers, their own authority, by their own desires. They're either for Jesus, or they're against Him. We are either for Jesus, and desire His will to be done in our life. Not my will done, and Him blessing that, but my will exposed for what it is, me released from that, and my heart desiring His will to be done in my life. Because Jesus isn't just my Savior. And Jesus will not be the Savior alone of anyone here. He will either be your Lord and Savior, or He won't be your Savior. He'll one day be the Lord who pronounces judgment on you. There is no other way. You will either know Jesus today by acknowledging that you have sinned against Him and you need His forgiveness. And you'll humble yourself And allow the blood of Jesus Christ to cleanse you. And the spirit of God to seal you. Or one day you will know the lordship of Jesus Christ. As he says, depart from me. I never knew you. Your choice. It's our choice. He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Therefore I say to you, again remember who he's speaking to here. He is speaking to the Pharisees. Therefore I say to you, you legalistic, self-righteous Pharisees, who know the word of God but have never experienced the loving life of God through the Holy Spirit, I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. You know, and this has created problems and dilemmas for the church forever. What is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Have I committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Let me push your fears aside. If you're concerned that you may have at one time or ever will in the future, blaspheme the Holy Spirit, then you are not guilty of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. All right? As long as it's a concern, you're, you're good. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is what? That, that is to speak against and to resist to reject what the holy spirit has been sent to do and the holy spirit has been sent to do what jesus told us in one sentence he says i will send another comforter just like myself and when he is come he will do what he will lead you into all truth who is the way the truth and the life It is Jesus. The blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is the final and ultimate rejection of Jesus Christ, not just as Savior, but as Lord and Savior. When we have rejected that, we have blasphemed, we have resisted, we have spoken against the clear direction of the Holy Spirit as Jesus has sent him. Notice, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men except the blasphemy against the Spirit. If we reject Him who the Spirit of God is revealing to us as the one who will save us and redeem us, if we reject that, do you understand then, there is no other way of being forgiven and accepted by God. If you reject Jesus Christ, there is no other way. Jesus in John's Gospel said, I am the only way, the only truth, the only life. I know your English Bible doesn't read it that way, but that is the original language. I am the only way, the only truth, the only life. No man comes to God the Father but by me. No other way. Doesn't matter how popular, it doesn't matter how well educated or how smooth the presentation or how widely accepted any other doctrine is. If it doesn't bring us to the centrality of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham who died on the cross, was buried, rose on the third day and ascended to the right hand of the Father, now prays for us, prepares a place for us and is promised in that perfect moment He will return for us so that where He is we might also be. If anyone rejects any or all of that truth, they are not a believer. They have blasphemed the Holy Spirit. All right. In fact, Jesus said, It will be forgiven him if he does believe the testimony of the Holy Spirit, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. If we die in that unbelief, If we die rejecting the testimony of the Holy Spirit who's been sent to convict the world of sin of righteousness and judgment it tells us in John 16. It's so important. Christianity is not a decision you make. It's an acknowledgement of a need that you make before God. The Spirit of God has convicted me of sin. I've sinned against God. He's convicted me of righteousness that the standard isn't a standard to be developed by us here on earth but it's a standard that has come down to us from the very throne of God and there is no changing to it there is no adapting it there there is no keeping up with the modern cultures the modern cultures have to adapt to the righteous standards of God Almighty and then finally the Holy Spirit convicts of judgment that those who reject God's only salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, they have committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and there is no hope for them. If they die in that state, they will spend an eternity separated from the one whom they have rejected. And yet they will spend an eternity knowing who they rejected. How tormenting. How awful. And so finally, we, ha- we have got to just quickly look at these five verses. They should have been included in this. And I gave Karina the wrong verses. So don't blame Karina. Blame me. We'll blame it on jet lag. I don't know. Either make the tree good. Here, Jesus, he's speaking to the religious leaders. And, and again, he uses an illustration that every simple person would, would clearly be able to understand. He says, listen, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For a tree is known by what its fruit And the the Pharisees, the religious leaders that he was talking to here, the ones who had confronted him, he's saying, listen, you guys are rooted in a bad tree and the fruit of your life is bad. It doesn't draw people to God. It doesn't reveal the loving nature of God. It pushes people away from God and condemns them. (laughs) And for anybody that thinks that Jesus was a softy, He then calls them a brood of vipers. It's not the first time, and it's not going to be the last time either. When we get to Matthew 23, he's really going to go after them and speak to them about how hypocritical they are. You brood of vipers. The idea of it literally is you sons of Satan. This is very strong language as he exposed them for who they were they thought they were servants of God they thought that they were the ones who had the handle on the truth they thought they were the ones that knew the way they knew they thought they were the protectors of all righteousness and truth and he looks at them and says no you guys are sons of the devil (laughs) you almost want to say "You, you go to your room and wash your mouth out you can't talk to people that way strong language really is you brood of vipers how can you being evil speak good things you can't if your heart is not right with god if your heart is dominated by the deception and the lies of the devil you cannot speak good things for out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things and an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. But I say to you, that for every, here it comes, that every idle word. Wow. These aren't the words where I lose my temper and I just let one fly because I want to hurt somebody. These aren't the words that I might speak to just draw somebody's attention to myself. Idle words are are the words that have just been kind of lodged away in our heart. We've entertained them. We've dreamed about saying it to somebody. We've we've dreamt about saying this and gaining people's attention in certain circumstances. It's just been there, but we've always been too decent, too cultured, too Christian to say these things but you know isn't it something all it takes is the right situation the right circumstance our emotions rise our anger comes up our foolishness dominates and man the stuff that comes out of our mouth you would love to be able to just grab it and bring it back wouldn't you? He says you need to understand God is not looking at the outward God is not impressed with the show God is not impressed with the language per se. What he is very, very concerned and very, very aware of is the heart that motivates everything. That's what he's looking at. And that's what he judges. And that's what he deals with. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. And notice he uses the word treasure against. A treasure is something that we do what? We guard it. We value it. Well, I have the right to feel that way. I have the right to say that. They wronged me. They said this about me. And the treasure of my heart is me. So I'm going to defend it. But I say to you, Jesus, for every idle word, circle it again, every idle word. It's interesting, one old commentator, Adam Clark, (laughs) he wrote this, A word that does nothing that neither ministers grace nor instruction to them who hear it. To him is an idle word. If it has no practical, positive, godly influence, then it is an idle word. So I'll be the first to confess, I have sinned, Before all of you. And therefore against all of you. Because I have allowed way, way too much verbiage to come out of my mouth. Not just from here. But probably more guilty when we're just all together. That doesn't build you up. Doesn't strengthen you in the faith. It doesn't glorify Jesus. And that is sin. And I'm confessing it to you now. It's my sin. And I hope you'll pray for me. That my words will be seasoned with salt. Always. No matter where I am. No matter what the circumstance is. That I won't speak foolishly. But I will speak of our dear Savior Jesus. Always. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. Man, serious stuff. I am thankful for the blood of Jesus and that we are forgiven when we confess our sin and turn from it. God is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness and wash us through the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. But I pray that we would all become united as well, united around the one idea that we live in a hostile environment and there are two kingdoms that have waged war against one another for at least 7,000 years and it is the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. And Satan has been so clever that he has made the kingdom of light appear to be darkness. And he has made the kingdom of darkness appear to be enlightenment. But Jesus said, you are the light of the world. Don't let the light of Jesus Christ be hidden under a basket where it does no man any good. We ought to pray today for boldness for one another. No longer being ashamed of who we really are. We're Christians. Christ ones. Followers of Jesus. Disciples of Jesus Christ. We are men and women of the book, the word of God. And we ought to be unashamed in speaking of it living it and by all the strength that the Holy Spirit gives us insisting by our behavior that it becomes more and more difficult for people around us to blaspheme the good name of our Savior Jesus and to blaspheme the gospel that he's given to us. Amen. Let's take communion together and pray with and for one another. Father, thank you Lord for your word, and Father, we pray, God, that as we prepare to remember the price that was paid for our forgiveness and acceptance, Lord, that our hearts would be open to your conviction, that our hearts would be surrendered to your will, and Father, our hearts would be filled with thanksgiving. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Just as a a word of warning, too, because there are some folks I I, I don't know you, But if you are not truly born again, then I do not recommend that you take communion. You ought to just let the Lord speak to your heart. Let him show you whether it's right for you to do this or not. But the Bible warns us about taking communion as unbelievers. While we've still rejected Jesus, we ought not take that which represents the price he paid for our salvation. Uh, So be careful of that. And let let the Lord guide your decision.